Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast. Episode 19, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Joining us in a few moments is Tracy Gossel from the Film Preservation Society and author of the definitive biography of Douglas Fairbanks, The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. But first, we wanted to remind you of a special event coming up at the Historic Roxy Theater in Bremerton, Washington this weekend. As we mentioned last episode, the Roxy turns 80 this year, and to kick off the celebration, they're throwing a birthday party for the one and only Quincy Jones, who turns 88 on Sunday, March 14th. Uh, There's going to be several special events happening uh, this weekend, including a showing of The Wiz at 6.30 p.m. on Sunday the 14th. For a $20 donation, you'll receive your ticket, popcorn, and a drink. And uh, also on Sunday, starting at 3.30 p.m., show up in your favorite Wiz or Wizard of Oz costume and enjoy the Roxy's pop-up wine bar. Then, of course, stick around for the movie. Uh, For more details, visit the Roxy Facebook page at at Roxy Bremerton, and we hope to see you there. The Roxy is a local institution, and we thank you for helping to support this historic theater. As sleek and sophisticated as modern entertainment has become, there's something timeless and irreplaceable about classic Hollywood. And today's guest, Tracy Gossel, is a champion of that preserving that bygone era. Although both a physician and an entrepreneur, Tracy Gossel's true passion is silent film history. In 2015, she published The First King of Hollywood, dubbed by the New York Times to be a, quote, buoyant handspring of a book, one of the most delightful Hollywood biographies to slide down the mast in years. The book has just come out in paperback in 2018. In addition, she founded the nonprofit Film Preservation Society, which has recovered and restored several silent films formerly thought to be lost or unavailable for viewing, including Fairbanks' Mr. Fix-It, The Good Bad Man, and The Half-Breed. FPS funded the software that enables the Library of Congress to scan original paper prints of silent films uh, from the first decade of the 1900s, and currently the goal is to restore all 485 D.W. Griffith biograph films that were made between 1908 and 1913. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a joy to be here. Thank you. both. So you've obviously got a passion for film, especially classic film, given the amount of time and energy you've spent on all your projects, which we're going to get into in a bit. As mentioned in your bio, you especially have a fondness for silent films. The silent era is something that seems to be something that the further we get away from it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Is there a certain picture or story that stoked that interest for you in silent film? Oh, wow. I have to admit, um, and I tell this story often, Lillian Gish was my gateway drug into silent movies. In 1968, uh, when I was 11 years old, she published her autobiography, The Movies, Mr. Griffith and Me. And I missed it when it first came out in hardcover, but I was uh, with my family stuck in an airport where our flight was canceled. So we went to the Uh, you know, cigarette, cigar, candy store in the airport. And there was a stack of paperbacks and there was a space looking up at me. It was Lillian Gish. And I asked mom if I could have that book. And so she bought me this little paperback book. And uh, I was probably about seventh grade then. And I started reading about silent movies, but couldn't see them, which is a strange way to become interested in something. But when kids are in middle school, that's sort of the age where they latch on to whatever is going to be their lifetime passion. If it's heavy metal, if it's video games, if it's stamp collecting or birds or anything. Uh, And I just happened to lock on to silent movies. And then when I was in, um, oh, I think it was my birthday at the end of ninth grade, my folks bought me an eight millimeter projector so I could start buying reels of film. And then I started seeing all these wonderful films that I had read about. And then it was down the rabbit hole I went. And I've never come out of that wonderland. So as the saying goes, uh, progress has no patience and we're always moving, quote unquote, forward. So silence films give way to talkies, black and white, turns into color. When we move forward, we tend to leave the old behind, but sometimes things are lost in the process, obviously. Is there anything from a filmmaking or acting perspective um, that you think is lost in the translation from silent to sound 
Well, so, is sound really, is it, is it just a fad? <laughs> <laughs> sound is just a fad. It's not going to last forever. Of course, there are gener a generation of young people, several, who won't even watch black and white movies. Can you imagine going through life and never seeing Casablanca? And my point of view there is, can you imagine going through life and never seeing Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton? Uh, but I'm going to argue that silent movies are even more seminally different from talking films than technicolor films are from black and white or 3D films are from 2D or you know, digital special effects are from regular film. When you view a silent film, you are processing the image and the music with a different part of your brain than when you view a talking film and are intellectually processing dialogue. It's a different part of um, your left temporal lobe, so to speak, that uh, is firing when you're seeing a talkie than when you're watching the image in conjunction with music. And it's a different and a far more intimate experience and a far more immersive experience to watch a silent film if you're watching it the way you should be watching it. And here's the problem. Most people watch media today uh, at home on a screen, certainly during the pandemic, or you know, on television. And you do, you multitask, you, you wait for the music to cue you when you have to look up at the screen. But otherwise you can follow the story by listening to it, looking up 50% of the time and you know, doing something else at the same time. You cannot do that with a silent film. You have to give it your whole attention. And once you give something your whole attention, you are far more into, immersed in that world than you think you would be given that you're looking at people 100 years ago. Uh, you're looking at them in black and white and you're not hearing their voices. You are in fact, communing with them at a far deeper level. And it's not uh, by accident that people who have autism are obsessed with, um, disproportionately obsessed with train schedules, baseball, that's because they're kind of numerically, statistically significant, but also jazz music and silent films, which require kind of the, the taking in and the processing of the listener or the viewer. And now we think of it as just an intellectual or academic thing that only a few um, cognoscente or, or academics are interested in. But in fact, that was popular culture. That's what everybody went to the movies and those were the movies. And once you learn to not pay attention to anything else and to truly watch a silent film, you never go back. I mean, you'll watch talkies. Of course you'll watch talkies. They're wonderful. I, you know, for second rate entertainment, I think talking films are just <laughs> fine. But uh, nothing in my mind can beat a silent film. You mentioned the the engagement, and I've noticed this with a, a lot of folks, especially now, and, and you get into this whole, what I've heard termed as the wickification of fandom, where people are just more interested in the plot and knowing what's going on and rather yeah. than watching the process of getting from mm -hmm. start to finish. From point A to point B, yeah. E exactly. And I've also noticed that with foreign films, when you have subtitles, that's another example of where you have to engage because if you don't understand what they're saying, you need to engage in the film. And it actually, I, I found, because I have more access to foreign films than you know, particular science, silent films, yeah, I get more out of them because I'm fully engaged in, in the process. One thing I, so I read a book a few years ago, it was called Missing Reels and it was by Farron and I'm, I, I apologize to her if I mispronounce the last name, Nemi, N-E-H-M-E. -E. It was a story about uh, a woman who thinks she's living upstairs from an old silent film star. So it goes into, there's a lot of silent film references in there and then they go and they try to find uh, some missing pieces of, a, of one of this woman's old films. So that intrigued me about silent films and, and um, without, again, like you had said, I haven't really seen that many of them, 
but the whole idea of it and, and just thinking about it is, is kind of special. And in 2012, when the uh, artist came out, art, the artist came out in 2011, but won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2012, and along with a number of other awards, it was a fantastic film. I was, I loved it. It was also the same year Hugo uh, came, or came out, uh, the Martin, Martin Scorsese film, yeah, which also toyed a little bit with the silent, you know, the, oh, the yeah. beginnings of the of the silent film. So, yes, exactly. So now Hollywood, I know, love tends to like to award movies about itself generally but regardless of that what is the recognition and and kind of the popular response to these two films that you're tell you about silent films is, is there a demand for folks to see it or is it more of a like we see with an ebb and flow of something like musicals where you have some you know more popular some years than others or is it just simply an homage to kind of a forgotten time in 1976 mill brooks made a silent comedy called silent movie and that was a huge hit and then we didn't really have a meaningful silent film again for years until the artist and it'll probably be another couple generations before another one comes out and that's okay because in fact we don't have to demand that society produce silent films now when in fact i argue our energy should be devoted towards saving the uh, backlog of silent films that were made between uh, 1900 and 1928 before they literally turned to dust because they were uh, filmed on nitrate stock, nitrate degrades, and uh, we're in a real race against time. We're restoring a Doug Fairbanks uh, film. We finished the restoration called Double Trouble, and we had the camera negative of um, what had survived of the camera negative from the Library of Congress. And some scenes looked like you were just looking in a snowstorm. There was almost no image at all. But fortunately, a rapscallion by the name of Raymond Rohauer, 50 years before, had borrowed that negative and kind of struck a print from it. And so we had a slice of time of what the the that very same reel of film looked like 50 years ago when somebody struck a positive from it. And it was like, hmm, now it's a much milder snowstorm. So to see what had happened in 50 years where we went from, I can see the image, it's kind of rocky, but I can see it to literally, you're just looking at snow, tells us the race that we're really making to try and save what's out there. So I have, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to the, the people who made the artist and they teach us that film with music and without words truly is an international language because the people who made that film didn't speak English. French actors and um, Uggy the dog did, did respond to English commands, but everybody else. Um, <laughs> You know, we, John Goodman was speaking English, the star was speaking French, and yet it didn't matter to us. We were watching uh, everything. And so uh, if more silent films are made, great, but if they're not, that's okay too, because I there are so many fabulous films that people can see that are silent. And that's not to denigrate subsequent product and talking films, etc. It's like there's this fabulous tangerine or you can also have this fabulous pear they're both wonderful pieces of fruit i like what you said about the global appeal um i think of uh even shows like uh mr bean uh a a global phenomenon uh based on a character that doesn't speak and that's part of what causes it to be a global phenomenon or or there's a there's a really fun claymation people are still doing claymation shows at, at the wallace shows and gromit. Ma, ma, uh, wallace and gromit same same uh, creators it's called sean the sheep mm-hmm. and uh you know a cast of of uh, funny animals on a farm and it's again another global phenomenon because there is no dialogue uh right. the most that any of the humans in the show do is mumble uh, and and mumbling is obviously a universal language. <laughs> well, the, the first, so I think the first is it half hour, forty five minutes of one of my favorite Pixar films, Wally, was basically a silent yeah. film, right? Yep. And in fact, as an inside joke, they had a clip of a D.W. Griffith nineteen oh nine silent film with hidden within that movie when um, one of the characters on the spaceship says, "What is Earth? You know, what is?" 
And basically the computer showed them all kinds of images of, of dirt and earth and the planet and stuff. On the lower left corner, there was a frame uh, or there was a running uh, section of film of a 1909 film called The Corner and Wheat that D.W. Griffith made at the Biograph Studio. And the farmer was throwing seeds onto the freshly plowed earth. So uh, believe me, the people at Pixar know to whom they owe their debt. And think of this, think of a marvelous, phenomenal, sensational sequence in a film that you may have seen that has almost no dialogue. Think of the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. You hear things blow up, you hear noises, you see images, but you it's not a talkie. And um, I would argue large chunks of it, even subsequently, Spielberg knows how to make a silent movie. There was a scene where all the women in the government office were typing letters, condolence letters. And one of the women looks at a letter and an address and you can see she's thinking and then she goes and she goes through a book and plucks up another letter and then she goes and she finds a third letter. And we realize without anybody saying anything that three people from the same family have probably died then she goes, talks to her bosses. Next thing, we were on a farm. We see a woman washing dishes. Again, no dialogue. We see, look out the window. As she looks out the window and a car comes, a government car. Oh, boy, this isn't going to be good. And then out comes a colonel or a general, and out comes a priest. And that woman drops to her knees on the porch. And she knows without having to be told this is not the regular telegram from the State Department. We regret to inform you. This is going to be really bad because they've sent a colonel and a priest. And Spielberg, without words, in 95% of that bit of film, has told his story more movingly than if we heard the colonel or the priest tell her that her, you know, three of her sons had died. Well, it almost goes back to the old screenwriting adage of show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess it's at its, at its most basic. So you, you teased this a little bit earlier, and I love that when guests do our work for us. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect segue. You are the founder of the Film Preservation Society, obviously. Yeah. Um, you're, you're passionate, uh, a lifelong passion for, for silent films. So tell us, uh, now that we know a little of your background, about the founding of the society and, um, and, and how your love for silent films uh, took you in that direction? Well, it started um, back a um, little more than 10 years ago. I was writing my biography of Douglas Fairbanks, which came out uh, about six years ago, the first King of Hollywood. So I'm up to about 1915, 1916, and there are some Fairbanks films I need to write about except they're either lost or they exist. You know, one reel is in this archive, one reel is in that archive. It's, nobody has put the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle together. Therefore, no one has seen this film in years. In the case of another lost film, it existed in an archive, but the intertitles were in Italian, so nobody saw it. So in order to see some of these films, I literally elected what the heck, heck, you know, the kids were out of college. They didn't need to inherit anything. So I elected to fund <laughs> um, the restoration of these films. And um, the first ones I did, I worked with Rob Byrne and the San Francisco Silent Film Festival and funded it through their 501c3. But over time, I said, you know, uh, let's just do this. So I did the paperwork and set up a 501c3. And since then, we have done a lot of film restoration and uh, uh, got um, one very ambitious project, which we can talk about now or another time, called the Biograph Project, where we are funding the restoration and shepherding the restoration of all 460 plus one real films that D.W. Griffith made at the Biograph Studios between 1908 and 1913. 
And that sounds like an arcane slice of time. But in fact, think of it this way. In 1908, essentially, if you're seeing a movie, you're seeing a film stage play. The camera sits, it cranks, you go through the entire act, then they do the next scene and the next scene. It's a motion picture, but it's not cinema. We're not cutting back and forth. We're not moving the camera in. We're not going between long shots and close-ups. We're not extending or shrinking time. Those techniques, uh, with some exceptions, of course, they knowledge pops up simultaneously in more than one place, but pretty much uh, you can say that all of those things were, were created in that uh, brief period between 1908 and 1913 by this one guy who film after film, he just started doing things like, well, let's cross cut between the heroine in trouble and help on the way Dickens does it when he writes, you know, Tale of Two Cities, you, you keep following back and forth. Let's do it on film, show the audience back and forth. And then let's make the shot shorter as we get closer to the, the climax. No, wait, let's actually have the bad guy trying to break in. So we have three things happening at once and we're not showing it as a static shot. We're showing the husband running to the rescue from miles away. We're showing the family running from room to room and locking themselves and the bad guys breaking down the doors sequentially. So he started moving time and space around. And pretty much if you look at a 1913 film, with the exception of sound, color, and special effects, it's the same in terms of uh, visual technique as we see on any television show today. So those 460-some films, some of them live in the Library of Congress, some of them live at the Museum of Modern Art. Well, part of a reel is sitting in Tokyo and nobody else has it. Another warped portion of a reel is living in um, Rochester, New York. It's the same as if you said, let's look at Mark Twain's early work, all of his short stories, but half of the story is in London and the other half of the story is in New York. And you, you have to literally go to London to read the first half and then to New York to read the second. We are restoring each film and putting them scoring them and then putting them ultimately on a platform where people can see them. And no, most people won't want to sit through 460, but maybe you want to say, okay, how did we treat Native Americans in early silent films? And you can see those films. No, no, I want to see all the early Mary Pickford performances. Okay, then we can filter for those films. Um, show me films that dealt with you know, poverty and unions or show me films that dealt with the Civil War, all of those things, if you're telling 460 plus stories, believe me, you know, you start being able to cluster them either by performers or by year or by theme or by technique. And um, that's a big project we've been working on. That's a long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's very promotes. Well, Griffith is another guy that, uh, along with Fairbanks, uh, that doesn't get near enough credit as really a forefather. I recently completed a, a series of videos uh, called Crash Course on uh -huh. film history, and they go into those those forefathers of, of modern cinema and people that we really, uh, without even knowing we're taking them for granted, take them for granted. So I'm, I'm anxious to have you back on. Uh, you're going to be back on on the 21st, uh, May 21st, to talk specifically about Douglas Fairbanks and yes. your book about his life. And of course, D.W. Griffith and Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin and all these just colossal. That's the other thing. These colossal stars. Uh, <laughs> people think that, you know, the Brad Pitts of the world are the are the are big stars. But these folks truly <laughs> some I'm, ex I'm excited for that. Yeah. So everybody set your mark your calendar for May 21st. And they formed United Artists and they formed yeah. Academy of Motion Pictures. And they I mean, these people were pioneers in every sense. So. Film Preservation Society started because I needed to see some Doug Fairbanks films. And I had to put my money where my mouth was if I was going to see them. And uh, ditto uh, for the Biograss. And we've got lots of other projects in between. Well, this is, uh, I mean, and to think that these films are over 100, you know, 10 
ish years old. Yeah. Um, it's it's they're real treasures, and and the work you're doing to keep these alive because we all know what happens with film over you know a period of time, and and it's so and we're gonna get in a little bit of the process in, in a little bit, but the there I mean there's so many you mentioned earlier there's so many of these these films that like you said we you know rather than making new silent films let's let's take the ones we have or ones that were made how do you decide to which ones to do you can't do them all unfortunately i wish how do you just <laughs> well sure. there's, there's the advantage of being the person who's funding it that i get to pick and so uh certainly there's sometimes you're limited by what archives will elect to work with you uh, but we've been very, very fortunate and everybody has been very generous. And so um, I essentially went where I saw an opportunity and the need. And uh, the MoMA camera negatives, uh, excuse me, the Biograph camera negatives were donated to the Museum of Modern Art in the mid-1930s. Mary Pickford had uh, purchased, trying to get her image off the screen, believe it or not, had purchased a bunch of camera negatives of her films from the biographs. They were at the Library of Congress and all of the 1908 films were lost, every single one, but you could not copyright movies in, up until 1912. The only way you could copyright a film was to copyright a photograph so these films existed on rolls of paper, strips of paper called paper prints. And so films that have since crumbled and turned to dust were sitting in rolls in the Library of Congress for more than a century. And while somebody tried to photograph them in the late 1950s, it's on 16 millimeter, it's like looking through a smeary Vaseline lens. It's not worth seeing essentially, but we are scanning them with modern technology and you know, cleaning them up and stabilizing them. And they look phenomenal. So things that have not been seen in 110, 120 years are now being seen. If you're curious and wanna see some of those side by side before and after things, go on Facebook and look at a page called The Biograph Project and scroll down. And there are just some side-by-side uh, -side, uh, bits where, well, here's what it looked like when we got the scan, which itself was pretty good, but it's still bouncing and, oh my gosh. And here's what it looked like after we applied digital rules to it to stabilize the image and to grab where the sprockets were and make it stay put. And then also to sharpen and lighten and, and get that image as it had been intended to be. We've got many cases, camera negatives. Um, if not, we've got later generation positives. And in some instances, we have multiple sources so we can kind of jigsaw back together something. In one instance, we've got uh, exquisite fine grain positive from the camera negative, but it's missing just one shot. And if you're missing just one shot, we then have to go to the paper print and scan it to put in the, the missing shot. In some instances, the Museum of Modern Art has all the interiors, but none of the exteriors. So we have the paper print, we scan the entire thing, and then, but we only restored the exterior shots because we had the camera negative for the interiors. And Again, jigsawed it back together where otherwise nobody had seen it complete in years. That was um, the first film where D.W. Griffith actually used a close-up. All of a sudden, I'm blanking on um, the name of the film, but it's uh, it'll come to me as we talk a little later. It's a 1909. Oh, at the altar. The bad guy set up a trap where as soon as the, the girl who turned him down in marriage kneels down to take her wedding vows with someone else, a gun was going to fire and kill her. And of course, the <laughs> policeman's rushing to the rescue uh, to stop it. Uh, and he trips over a chicken. And uh, believe it or not, he literally trips over a chicken and sprains his ankle. So then somebody else has to take over for him. And if you see the movie <laughs> without any of the exteriors, it's like, 
oh, this note, oh my gosh, we must stop this thing from happening. And then suddenly the policeman runs off, but somebody else runs into the church and stops it. It makes no sense. <laughs> but now we see the policeman trip over the chicken and it all falls into place. Well, right. The, when you're talking about the challenges and things like that, it reminds me of a, a, a book I read on the restoration of some of the old Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons, yeah. which is obviously the character that predated Mickey Mouse from mm -hmm. Walt Disney. And yeah, it's the same kind of story where just pieces of it here, pieces of it there, trying to puzzle it all together. And there again, we're talking silent films, really, you know, before. Yeah, a byword. Yeah. yeah, Oswald was a silent film character, a lucky rabbit. We've been speaking with Tracy Gossel, founder of the Film Preservation Society. And Tracy's going to stick around after the break to answer some more questions about her passion and her experience in restoring films. So stay tuned. We'll be right back on Highland Neighbor. And welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is March 12th, the anniversary of the last episode of landmark sketch comedy series Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. The show launched on January 22nd, 1968 and ran for 140 episodes, launching the careers of actresses Goldie Hawn and Lily Tomlin. The final episode took place on March 12th, 1973 and featured guest stars Ernest Borgnine, Sammy Davis Jr., and Robert Goulet. Goulet. And happy 75th birthday today to singer, dancer, actress, and Academy Award winner Liza Minnelli. As the daughter of Judy Garland and director Vincente Minnelli, Liza was practically raised at MGM, where she won a Tony Award at age 19 and was nominated for her first Academy Award at age 23. Best known for her 1972 film Cabaret, in recent years, Liza has focused on the stage and adding to her impressive list of Grammy Award-nominated musical albums. And also on this day in 1912, the Little Theater opened on Broadway with just 299 seats to its name. Despite expanding to 597 seats, it remains the smallest theater on Broadway. But it was renamed the Helen Hayes Theater in 1983 in honor of Hayes, the legendary actress of stage and screen whose career spanned over 80 years. Before signing with MGM in 1931, Hayes made a number of silent films. And speaking of silent films, that's the topic of today's episode, and a passion for our guest Tracy Gossel, founder of the Film Preservation Society and author of The First King of Hollywood, the life of Douglas Fairbanks. We're having so much fun learning about her works uh, saving these priceless films. We asked Tracy to return to the show in May to celebrate Fairbanks' birthday and talk about her book. So make sure to mark your calendar for May 21st and go pick up a copy. Her book's available at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, of course, uh, or request it from your local bookseller. I'm actually reading it now, and it is excellent. So Tracy, pretty phenomenal the work you're doing. I was uh, on your website yesterday watching some of the side-by-sides in some of your promo videos and the interviews with your uh, your video engineer and uh, mm -hmm. unbelievable. I mean, not to mention uh, the the software that we have available to us now that yeah. can do this stuff. And um, without getting too far out into the technical weeds, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, aspects of restoration, what are a couple of the major steps of the process from acquisition to the finished project? The And here's where um, I urge you to bring on Katie Pratt, who uh, you, you just referred to. She's more than a software engineer. This woman is a trained uh, archivist and restorationist. She trained at the George Eastman Museum and, and spent years in a, in a training program um, there. And so what you do is you first have to get the material and uh, get it on a flat plate scanner that will then uh, advance the frame at a time to get a digital 4K scan. Well, that sounds easy, right? Well, yes and no, because biograph camera negatives had only two sprockets per frame most mm -hmm. they, they cut the sprocket holes as you went put the film through that's why they could be copyrighted as being different from thomas edison's camera right uh, <laughs> and that it makes it hard for the machines to advance your film then this film has warped and uh, degraded and sometimes you have to do something called wet gate scanning if you look at uh, scratches on a crystal of a watch, if you know, it's pretty scratchy, but if you put that watch under water, which I don't advise, the scratches will become less evident. So if we put the film underwater, then it's more expensive, but then a lot of the scratches 
you don't have to digitally remove because you're sort of removing them in the scanning process. Then um, you have to go frame by frame. And um, uh, first you stabilize the entire thing so people stop jumping. And the, and the movies didn't jump 100 years ago, but again, there's been shrinkage and warpage and uh, things. And take out all of the scratches and the dots of dust and things that have accumulated. And there's a challenge. Uh, Katie Pratt has shown me examples where the computer thought it was taking off dots of dust, but those are buttons on the policeman's jacket. You know, oh. the computer doesn't necessarily yeah, know. Careful. <laughs> so, yeah, or, or a hand will suddenly disappear. There was a film, a Valentino film about 15 years ago that was restored by somebody else with an earlier software iteration where a poor little dog was running across the street and the software said, well, that's, that's something doesn't belong. So they just erased the dog. Um, and a careful um, restorationist knows to just look and look and look uh, and be sure that the computer's not doing things in its attempt to return us to the original image that in fact is altering the image. Lace curtains can be a oh, huge nightmare. They tend to dance. And you don't want it to look better than it looked in 1908. You know, if, if you see a restoration of a Hitchcock um, film, not notorious, not suspicion, the one where Ingrid Bergman is a psychiatrist and Gregory Peck, and there's a ski accident that they, actually filmed with miniatures. If you look at a modern restoration, you see all the little strings. Well, we, we don't want to see the little strings. We want to see uh, something that the original cameraman would have produced and would have been proud of, but not something that's artificially better than that. And that's a judgment and an aesthetic judgment call. Then you need, if the film was tinted, you need to get the uh, tinting history and try and match the original tints. If the intertitles are lost, then we have a mathematical formula about that subtracts sort of the amount of film that we have from the camera negative versus the release length and foot and the amount of average number of feet per intertidal. And uh, we match it up against cases where we do have the intertitles. And then we try and recreate the intertitles using the same voice that the people at Biograph used back in the day. But boy, if we can find the original continuity script and put those original titles back in, which is in itself a research job, then we do that. And if ever we have to write a title because it's missing, we, we put our little FPS bug so the audience knows that this is a approximation of an intertitle. And sometimes you get a film that was filmed with American intertitles and somebody translated them into Italian and all we have is the Italian. So then somebody translates it back to English and a lot of the vernacular is lost, you know? Um, and you guys created your own font, correct? Yes. We, we replicate the font of the original studio. So for the Fairbanks triangle films, there are films where the intertitles survive and they always use the same font. So we duplicated that manually. For um, the biographs, there are also many, many biographs that have surviving intertitles. And there are also um, some material at the Museum of Modern Art that, that has you know the, the cards that they used. And we're, we digitally, did the whole alphabet, capital letters and smaller letters. And again, kudos to Katie Pratt. You know, I, I just uh, wheedled the prints out of the archive. She's the one that sits for hours and does this really granular labor and put everything back. And as a side note, um, I have a, my oldest child works um, in casting for those Marvel superhero movies. And so I get to go to the friends and family premieres. And those are not the premieres with the movie stars. Those are the premieres with all of the worker bees 
who actually made the film. So there'll be the, here's the sound uh, credits and all one section of the theater will cheer. And then, you know, here's casting and then a little section cheers. Well, what I've learned is that Marvel hires a company, Disney and Marvel hire a company for the special effects that intentionally is staffed with uh, people, workers with autism because this plays to their strengths. They're making something blow up digitally. They have that patience and an incredible attention to detail to make that effect perfect. And so uh, Disney and Marvel said, we need our special effects to look flawless, um, not to look computer generated. And somebody had a company that said, the best people to do this are uh, people with this particular mental quirk or mental strength, but kind of obsessive compulsive characteristic. And uh, so the well, next time you see a Marvel movie, know that a lot of the people who made Spider-Man fly or who, you know, made digitally put the ears on, um, on uh, vision and WandaVision are people with autism. And, you know, it, it just takes such granular attention to detail. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned that we have, uh, I was able to visit the, the Disney studio lab last time I was in Burbank before yeah. everything shut down. And uh, <laughs> well, you talked about trying to make things not look fake. So there's there everything with, especially building films in a virtual reality setting mm-hmm. and things like that. The challenge that they, they told me was to make it look like it's a film and not make it look like it's just this flat two-dimensional kind of thing. Really Give it the depth. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, uh, I know that they take good care in that regard too. And and it's nice to hear that they're taking care in, in kind of that other. Uh, yeah. And um, socially responsible well. hiring, you mm-hmm. know, that it's not patronizing the population, but instead playing to their strengths and giving them work. I, you know, I just think that's marvelous. Yeah, it is. So how long does that process from the, you go through the steps take for any particular, you take one of the biograph films or one of the Fairbanks films? Um, the longest one has taken, I think we started working on Double Trouble back maybe around 2014. Why did it take so long? What year was the, um, the big international world cup in Brazil? I don't remember, but we needed to get a two reels of a five reel film out of an archive in Brazil. It took years. First it was, well, you know, the the world cups here. Nobody is, you know, we, we, we can't pull those two reels out and get them scanned. 2014, by the way, (laughs) thanks to Google. It, it just, um, and then finally we sort of had to get the Library of Congress and the U.S. government saying, look, just put it in a diplomatic pouch. We'll, we'll scan it. <laughs> they had to lean and lean and lean. And so just getting the raw material, because this was a film where um, uh, the material that was at the Library of Congress, the five reel original, much of it had turned to dust. But in uh, the 20s, somebody had cut that five reel film down into a little two reel comedy. And there was a copy in Brazil with Portuguese intertitles. And it just so happened it had most of the little shots that we were missing. You know, if the hero was reaching for the girl, we had it in the Washington DC print, but when he actually got the kiss, it was from the Brazil print and then back to Washington. Sometimes just to have him trip down a flight of stairs, it was about 40 cuts back and forth. And because we were cutting between 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter, um, the edges of the frame are different. So sofas would shrink and you know come and go because just within a scene. And so that film took about seven years off and on to assemble um, because it just took so darn long. On the other hand, if we get a pristine scan from the Museum of Modern Art and we, it's in, um, it comes to us in shooting order, not at ed- final edited release order, 
but we can tell from the markings what the the shot order should be. Oh, this was shot 23 and it's flagged as shot 23. And we have the original continuity and we have the intertitles. We can, can do a 15 or 11 minute film in a week, but that's when every single star aligns. And uh, most feature films started at five reels and would go up as many as 10. The Three Musketeers, for example, is, is much longer. But Tracy, do you have a, a film that you would particularly like to restore that you're just missing a piece or two from, kind of like a, that missing puzzle piece that frustrates us all when we're trying to put that jigsaw puzzle together? Is there something like that for you that you're just kind of missing something? I don't have one where I'm missing one little bit, because if I'm missing one little bit, you can get um, keybook stills and fill in the one short missing scene. What breaks my heart is that there are entire films that are just gone. David Pierce of the Library of Congress did a uh, international study once and was able to document that about 15% of all silent films that were made survive. And yes, people like Charlie Chaplin had their camera negatives and took good care of them. So, you know, we can say those gems survive, but otherwise it's a mix. It's not like the best 15% survived. You've got a lot of junk that survives. And things like the masterpieces of Buster Keaton were only found because James Mason went into his potting shed one day and found some reels of film because Buster Keaton used to live in the mansion that James Mason lived in in the 50s. And there were the what were thought to be the lost uh, masterpieces of Buster Keaton. So for me, my holy grail would be uh, the lost Fairbanks films from 1919. Um, There were these were the the pre-swashbuckler comedies that he made, films like Say Young Fellow and Bound in Morocco, Arizona, Knickerbocker Buckaroo. I mean, he was the number one star in the world at the time. Chaplin was the number one comedian. Uh, the love of his life, but not yet wife, Mary Pickford, was the number one female star. And to think that whole films are lost, especially because he donated those films before he died to be uh, saved. And because there wasn't necessarily enough room for them to be stored, some went to foreign archives and, you know, we know what happened to Europe in World War II, um, but also some just were left to turn to dust, even though they had been donated. They, they, there were not budgets to save these things. Mary Pickford similarly donated all of her films to the American people, to the Library of Congress in the 40s. And the Library of Congress didn't have the resources to save them. And there are Mary Pickford films today that we are funding the restoration of because nobody else is doing it. Now, the Pickford Foundation, Fairness, is funding some of their restorations, but only the ones they think are going to be commercially viable. And we think, oh, my gosh, if Mary Pickford made it, it should be saved. Um, so I, I think, for me personally, it's the Lost Fairbanks films for... Most silent film people, they would say a complete copy of the Eric von Stroheim's Greed or Lon Chaney's London After Midnight are typically the holy grails that most silent film historians search for. But I... Is there a chance that they're still out there? We're going to bump into them at a garage sale or an estate sale? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, The Lon Chaney film, The Unknown, uh, was found recently in an archive because remember these archives people donate reels and reels of film they can't i mean they they store them but they they can't they don't have the money they don't have the public funding and i get it you know there's a pandemic people are starving there have been wars it's it's not the first thing on people's minds the government's minds to save this stuff which is why i think private citizens who are 
interested in it should put our money where our mouths are if we believe in this. Um, they found a, a, you know, a stack of films on which was written unknown. So that oh, we don't know what's in there. It says unknown. No, it was the unknown. Uh. film. <laughs> Okay, all of our listeners out there, you go and check your attics and garages check and basements immediately. If you, find it, if you find it, please don't put it in the mail because if it's a nitrate film, it's flammable. It has to be shipped a special way. But I found, thanks to some help from the Pickford Foundation, we bought some reels of biograph films, including camera negatives that nobody had. The Museum of Modern Art Library, nobody had them. They were with a guy in the valley in a storage locker with thousands of films. But these were the only silent ones he had. And so he sold them to us. Do you typically get uh, a lot of pushback or do you do you find that most owners are cooperative with your project? We don't deal with very many private collectors. We largely uh-huh. deal with archives because private collectors years ago, their grandparents gave these away. That said, Every so often, somebody contacts us and says, I found this in the attic. A lady uh, a week or two ago sent me two tiny reels. And she said, oh, they're eight millimeters. So I thought, oh, golly, there's, you know, Library of Congress said, no way, we're not interested. Eight millimeter, that's going to be, you know, some commercial thing. But in fact, they were 16 millimeters. So right now they're a lab, they're being scanned. They're probably three minutes each. They're probably commercially known, saved, available films, but who knows? Yeah. Um, so we're going to see what they are, and then we will get them to the proper archive where they can be stored. But people, I'll give you an example of something wonderful. Douglas Fairbanks in 1921 made a film called The Three Musketeers. Major film, very important. Portions of that film were actually colored in a, it's like a stencil process. So D'Artagnan, you may or may not remember, had a buttercup yellow horse. Nobody has ever seen the movie with the buttercup yellow horse. It's a black and white movie. Maybe it's tinted, but the horse was never yellow, as distinct from the rest of the frame. But somebody had a little home toy projector with just 100 feet of film. And in that 100 feet of film, Lab marked on the side of the, of the, uh, by the sprockets, 1921, was 100 feet of Doug Fairbanks on the Buttercup Yellow Horse. And from that, the Museum of Modern Art said, okay, we got these frames of what it looked like. We can digitally go in and reconstruct and put that Buttercup Yellow on every scene with the Buttercup Yellow Horse. And then the background color of the frame informed us of what Fairbanks's tints, selected tints were. We had nothing but people's memories, notes. Wow. We had no copies of the actual color. So the 2017 restoration that San Francisco Silent Film Festival did, which was excellent, Rob Byrne does wonderful work. He had picked a amber color tint that, and who knows, your guess is as good as mine, because it was a guess. Well, now we know what the background color was. And so just this week, we're recoloring the whole darn thing now that we know what the correct background color was. And we're putting the yellow horse back in. And we funded an orchestral score, uh, Rodney Sauer and the Mont Alto Orchestra. And that puppy is going to come out on Blu-ray probably late this year because of the cooperation of the Museum of Modern Art the George Eastman house who had the hundred feet, you know, Rodney Sauer's generosity in giving us a nonprofit rate on the score. And we're standing on the shoulders of Rob Byrne and the San Francisco silent film festival, who did the original work with Fairbanks's camera negative. And all we're doing is combining all of this into one perfect thing because up till now, the only version ever available has been a scratched up 16 millimeter. Now, for the first time, people will see it as people saw it 100 years ago this year. Pristine, the yellow horse is back, and the tints are original, and it's it's a gloriously fun thing of beauty. And, you know, if you don't aren't familiar with silent films, start with the comedies. You know, 
don't start with birth of a nation. Oh my God. <laughs> no, it's racist and, no, no. and you can hardly mention D.W. Griffith because he was a Southerner in 1915. He made this film that reflected the views of, of, of a guy who was raised Dad was a Civil War Colonel Roaring Jake Griffith, and he was raised in the Reconstruction Jim Crow uh, years. He was, for his era, uh, an advanced person in that he wasn't in favor of, you know, the dreadful bigotry and lynching. But even somebody, you know, in 1915, you're 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 just gonna. You're going to have the biases of your era, and his biases were that of a white Southerner, and it's just like, oh no! And don't start with a drama like that. Start with a comedy. Watch Charlie Chaplin and the Kid. Watch Buster Keaton and the General. Um, or, or see, you know, if you're going to see a drama, see The Big Parade. You know, with with John Gilbert. There are so many, or a horror film, Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. Mm -hmm. Ten minutes in, you'll forget. It's silent. You will just be so absorbed in the story. And um, once again, I've wandered way off from your question. I'm well, that's, 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 that's great. Uh, but Tracy, that's great advice on, on how to get started with silent films. Yeah. And we thank you for, uh, for stopping by and talking to us about this. And like Matt said, we're going to have you back. Before we go, I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about any other projects you have coming up besides Biograph that you mentioned and the Fairbanks stuff. And, and also just a little shout out how people can support the Film Preservation Society. Oh, I wish they will, but only with uh, money you can afford to give. Because again, we know times are hard. If you go to www.filmpreservationsociety.org, we have a donate button. We're 501c3. We'll send you a letter so you can write it off on your taxes. Or another way to do it, uh, it, it's just pennies, but it still adds up. If you go to Amazon and go to smile.amazon.com and stipulate Film Preservation Society, Inc. as your charity, then I think this quarter we got $26, you know, okay. So in a year we get a hundred <laughs> from all my friends um, uh, signing up for Amazon. It doesn't cost you anything. They give, you know, Jeff Bezos takes one little bit of a penny out of his billions and gives to the charity of choice. But again, if you'd rather give to the ASPCA, that's fine. We're, coming up with the funding and you know again i'm putting my money where my mouth is because it's something i believe in and i want done i can't solve all the ills in the world so i've picked this one little area of the universe where it's time sensitive and i can try and and save something for future generations other projects we're working on um with the library of congress on some William S. Hart Westerns from the teens. They had found the material, they had assembled it, they did the hard work, but they didn't have the funds to stabilize and restore and make it look as good as it looked when it first came out because they can either pretty much save 30 films with the money they have, or they can do one film and make it look perfect. And God bless them, they're trying to save 30 because you know, nitrate won't wait. So we are also, um, apart from the Biograph films and the Douglas Fairbanks films, we're also working to restore William S. Hart films. And we have available for purchase if you want Harpo Marx's first movie, which was a silent movie. It's a um, comedy uh, called Too Many Kisses starring Richard Dix who was a big uh, star in the 20s, and William Powell, who you may remember from The Thin Man. Yes. Oh, yes, one of our favorites. William Powell's the villain, and oh, he's brilliant as a villain. And Harpo Marx is this comic uh, side character, but he's got his wig. He looks just like Harpo, and he's as hilarious in a silent movie as he is in a talkie. I like, I want to see the bumper stickers, Nitrate Won't Wait. That's right. Filmpreservationsociety.com. Yeah. Or, or is it dot or, dot org? Talkie.org. Dot com will also get you there. Okay. And talkies <laughs> are just a fad if we came up with that sticker. There you uh, go. I would wear that t-shirt. are welcome. <laughs> and thank you for the megaphone. I'm so grateful. 
Well, thank you so much for for joining us. This has been a, an education and uh, and inspiration to go and and look back at those silent films. Yeah, they're worth doing. I urge everybody who's listening to this podcast, whether you're listening to it in 2021 or 10 years from now, because podcasts live forever, um, to go seek them out. And I promise you, you'll never regret it. Well, thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. You were patient and kind and good listeners and uh, fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you again to our guest, Tracy Gossel. For more information and to support the Film Preservation Society, visit them at filmpreservationsociety.org, or she said .com will get you there too. On Facebook at at Film Preservation Society and follow them on Twitter at at Biograph Project. And while you're at it, make sure to request a copy of Tracy's 2015 biography, The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks, from your local bookseller. Then mark your calendar for May 21st when Tracy will return to talk about Fairbanks as a man, megastar, and husband to Mary Pickford, and what it was like compiling a book that the New York Times Sunday Review called one of the most delightful Hollywood biographies to slide down the mast in years. And tune in next week when we'll be joined by casting director Judy Rothfield, a 34-year veteran of casting for film, television, and notable lead actor searches. Jody directed casting for such well-known films as Sleepless in Seattle, The Ring, and Empire Records, and lead actor searches for The Spiderwick Chronicles, Speed Racers, Signs, Hearts in Atlantis, Stepmom, and Great Expectations. That's next Friday, March 19th. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you missed hearing screenwriter Danny Bilson's story about penning the Rocketeer and working with Spike Lee or Tim Conway Jr. telling stories about his hilarious dad, all of our past shows are available there as well. We hope you enjoy the program, and if you do, the best compliment is sharing it with a friend or two. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and email us at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until we're treading the boards together again, thanks for supporting local theater and joining us on Heilman and Haber.